Hello, and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omerizami. Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami, and I'm excited to be here with Dr. Raylene Sambrook out of uh, Australia. Uh, she's traveled a bit in the past few years, but uh, during her uh, prosthodontics residency, she was uh, you know, faculty at the dental school and she taught us um, a lot of our pros lectures and I really enjoyed the way she taught. And uh, we've been talking over the past few months and luckily uh, she gave us an hour of her time to come and talk some dentistry and some occlusion and some pros. So uh, thank you so much for being here, Raylene. If you want to just go into your background and then we'll sort of jump off from there. Um, hi, Dr. Amid. Thank you for inviting me to speak today on the Newbie Dentist podcast. It's very exciting for me. Um, so a bit of my background, uh, I graduated as a dentist from the University of Queensland in 2000 and I worked as a GP dentist. Um, during that time, initially, I started in a government position where I was doing both adult and paediatric treatment. Um, after that, I then uh, moved into more of a private role working with a health fund. Um, and I guess I got to a point sort of at the seven-year mark that I needed something more. So I think what happens is when you're a new dentist, everything is quite new and exciting and you yeah. feel very challenged by everything. But at the <laughs> same time, you also have a few moments of uh, heart failure and you soon learn where you don't go to avoid heart failure. So yeah. <laughs> uh, you can become a little bit conservative and then when you become conservative, you also uh, start to lose the excitement of the, the, of the job. So uh, For sure. I then sort of reflected on what aspects of dentistry I liked and which ones I probably didn't enjoy so much and where I wanted to to get better and I guess at that point I made the decision that um you know I found prosthodontics probably the the most exciting only because it, in my mind it was sort of the the most varied so um, I enjoyed sort of the longer appointments. I liked the longer treatment plans where you yeah. got to spend more time with people and get to know people. Um, I also felt that with the prosthodontics, it was a real life changer for the patient. So when you for delivered sure. some really nice uh, cosmetic or aesthetic um, outcomes, it, it really sort of had a, an impact on the, the patient. And uh, I, I think just the fact that it was so varied. So, you know, um, in the early 2000s, we were looking at sort of, you know, implant dentistry just becoming um, yeah. more mainstream for GP dentists. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed removable. And then I also sort of really enjoyed the theory. So understanding um, material science, uh, understanding occlusion. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really wanted to... Um, you know, get to understand treatment planning better. So, you know, I was in a position where patients would come and see me and I knew they had complex needs, but I didn't have the skill set to be able to understand what the issues were and how to deliver a, uh, you know, yeah. an appropriate sort of solution for them. So, yeah, so I figured that PROS was the, uh, the space for me. I applied for University of Melbourne um, and fortunately, I got in, and that That's was awesome. sort of where history started. Yeah, <laughs> That's pretty cool. So it's cool that um, 
you worked for so I don't know you worked so long before getting into Pros. So um, what was sort of your like how how many years into it did you decide like maybe I want to specialize? And um, after that decision, like did the decision to specialize come first, or did the decision to do Pros come? And then you're like, no, I want to specialize in Pros. Like you love Pros so much that you're like, this is where I want to focus on. Yeah, no, I think the decision, I, I, in actual fact, the decision was I needed to do something more. Yeah. So, I, and I, I did, I undertook a lot of uh, CPD training and I felt that I was getting a lot of surface information that didn't actually give me sufficient information to tackle the, the problems that I wanted to. So, I felt that if I really wanted to become an expert in something, then I needed to go back and uh, really invest the time and effort to, to, to develop my skill set. So I came to the decision that I wanted to be better at something, but as a, I really enjoyed all aspects of general dentistry. So yeah. you know, then I sort of had to make that decision, well, which, which do I like more? And I guess that's why... Um, I sort of explained before how I went through, you know, a decision-making process, like what do I like about dentistry, what do I like less about dentistry. So, for example, I, I really hated um, short appointments. So 30-minute appointments yeah. all day, every day, <laughs> my mind crazy. Just being controlled by the ticking of the clock is something yeah. that really sort of adds so much stress. me out. So, yeah, for sure. Like- <laughs> So for that reason, um, I knew that I didn't want to do something like orthodontics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let the hygienist do all the work. Do yeah, yeah. Do all the work. <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool. So what was like, um, and you know, I've had, a, I've, I've spoken to a few other Pross residents uh, from the States, um, Dr. Bedrosian and uh, Dr. Mizumoto. They're uh, uh, sort of in their final years of doing training and they're pretty active on uh, Instagram and they've sort of created this app called like Pross 365. Um, so they're oh, yeah. sort of posting cases they're doing every day in, in their residency. And for me, that was pretty cool because uh, I felt that Melbourne, uh, the PROS program didn't really give us like a full, fair um, like perspective on what the specialty could be. So I remember in school, I was thinking like, like PROS is so like boring, like you just do like single crowns. And we didn't, I feel like we didn't have enough exposure to like big cases and like, uh, like full mouth rehabs. Not that we would do it, but even to like observe it or, or learn about it. Um, so I feel like after graduating now, I'm like learning a lot more about PROS and, and all the different things and all the different modalities that, that, and treatment options that they can provide. So what perspective of PROS did you have like in dental school and then in your first few years of working as an associate? Yeah, I, I find your comments, um, quite interesting actually, because I think one of the challenges of teaching prosthodontics is that it is because it is it, it encompasses such a broad area it is really challenging to to have you understand the complexity of cases without at least having the fundamental building blocks first so obviously yeah. within the training courses the intention is to ensure that when you leave your training program you do actually understand you know how to come to a diagnosis how to treatment plan, how to execute the treatment. And then the the purpose of your um, general dental training program is that once you leave, you can then build on those building blocks um, to become, once you've developed your skill set, then you can become more proficient and undertake sort of these, these more complex cases. 
Um, but I also sort of acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, we do have these issues where due to time constraints of the training program, you don't yeah. get the opportunity to see some more complex things. And I guess uh, one of the um, programs that they run at the University of Melbourne are the, are the back, uh, back to basics programs or, you know, the little uh, residency programs yeah. they have when when they get everybody together in your final year and the purpose at that point is to actually try and not only just go back over the theory of, uh, you know, the building blocks that you've been learning, but also then take the opportunity to show you how you can apply that to, you know, the more complex cases. Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that those uh, uh, prosthodontists, though, are sort of, you know, just trying to highlight what they're doing because, in all honesty, pros is so cool that... Um, I, I, sw- I swear it's so cool. Like, I had no idea. Like, honestly, like, I would, you know, I'm, I'm Auburn, I would, would sit in the lunchroom and, like, after a pros lecture... And we're all like, literally, like, who would become a prosthodontist? Like, any any dentist can do a crown or like, it's like, and now I'm like seeing and like, obviously, the modern pros, like surgical pros, like implants, like all on fours, um, and all that kind of like stuff. It's, it's so broad, and it's so like, exciting. So uh, like, I've oh, totally, yeah. completely changed my mind, like in the past, like year, having more exposure to it. And like, I, yeah. I, I literally, I realized I know nothing like, it, like I got my work and beyond like, you know, like a single unit. Uh, kind of thing. I'm just like, I feel like I'm so out of my depth with looking at a big case and, and trying to like figure out like what to do next. So I think it's pretty cool. No, and I guess where you're at now is sort of where I was at as well, which is why I made the decision to go back and do pros because there are really complex cases, which, um, you know, which are really exciting to undertake. And when you get to the end of, I mean, you know, in some cases, treatment goes for years. So these people almost become part of your sort of, you know, your little dental clinic family because they're there so frequently. And, uh, yeah. you know, it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love pros. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little bit biased, a little bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's awesome so um like i mentioned before uh to you i i, w- I do want to nerd out quite a bit and, and talk a fair bit about just you know general occlusion occlusion uh principles and ideas because oh, yeah. i know you lectured on it and and um it's something that i personally want to review and i think other people will find value in it as well um so before doing that though i want to sort of talk about your last few years um because I, I know um i think the last time i saw you you're sort of finishing up your um, training and you're heading overseas to do some more schooling and all that. So what have you been up to in the past couple of years? So, um, so I actually finished my pros training in 2011 and then I worked at the dental hospital in Melbourne, the Royal Dental Hospital of Melbourne for, um, about five years. Um, and at that time I was also lecturing and teaching at the University of Melbourne Um, and then I sort of I think one of the challenges if you don't go into say private practice is that an independent private practice as well is that you're going to be working in some sort of larger organization Mm -hmm. and the big concern that I have there is that there is really a failure of alignment between sort of the administrative or the um, management side of these larger organisations and sort of where the mindset of the clinicians are in terms of delivering care and improving health outcomes. So I guess I made a decision that um, 
you know, looking at the bigger picture long term, one of the ways that we can actually improve health outcomes is by improving the efficiency and the effectiveness of, say, for example, um, dental health programs that are, are government funded. Yeah. So I made the decision that, um, you know, in order to be able to communicate effectively with um, management people, I needed to be able to speak their language because there's no way that someone who's a manager is going to go do dentistry and pros to sort of, you know, <laughs> get where I'm coming from. Yeah. So um, I was really lucky. I My husband has a UK passport, so we were able to go over to uh, Switzerland and I did an um, executive MBA at the University of Lausanne. And uh, I finished that in December. And nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, and now he has a job in London. So I am looking at moving there. That's awesome. So that's pretty cool. I, I see a pattern emerging of you don't want to sort of, if you, you're going to do something, you're going to go all out and do it. So you wanted to learn process, you do a residency, you wanted to learn some executive uh, lingo, say, do your MBA. It's pretty cool. <laughs> pretty respectable as well. <laughs> Well, what, um, what's really interesting with the executive MBA is that we spent a lot of time sort of um, being forced in a way to reflect upon ourselves and how we operate. Well, you, you do a lot of things looking at group dynamics and how groups work, but a big part of that is who you are and how you interact with people and how people perceive you. So uh, I actually came to the realisation that I'm a details person. So I need to understand the detail. And if I don't understand the detail, then I sort of, I have a malfunction in my brain. So this is, this is the underlying uh, issue for me. That's the, it's not an issue. I think that's the right way to do it. You want to be comprehensive. That's awesome. So that's pretty, so, I mean, just from like my personal standpoint, um, I've always thought about the idea of doing an MBA as being pretty cool because um, not maybe not as noble as your pursuit of it to like get on the community health and, and and be more efficient at that. But from my end of things, I wanted to think maybe like later on in my career, if I wanted to sort of uh, branch out and, you know, maybe get into like uh, managing a few practices and building something that way. Um, so what do you think, like in terms of people you met um, or your experience in MBA school, is that something that like a dentist, a general dentist in private practice uh, could could benefit from, or do you think it's a little bit like too much? Like we don't necessarily need to go through all that to be able to um, effectively like lead and manage like multiple offices or anything like that. Um, look, I think because you're on the job and when you are forced to manage people, um, you you know you probably learn a lot about business. So you know, for example, my friends and my colleagues who have their own practices, there is no doubt that they have, they had sorry, a better base knowledge of how you know dental practices work and what they need to do in terms of you know improving patient inflow and uh, managing staff and and you know all of those businessy aspects. Mm-hmm. What I think was great about the MBA, though, was that um, I was in a, like, I think I was extremely fortunate, but I was with a fantastic group of people, and uh, you're not learning about things just from a dental perspective. So I actually saw outside of the dental world, and it was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it was really cool to learn about a lot of things that I never thought that I would ever learn about. So um, not that I actually enjoyed learning about all the finance uh, things. So um, that actually was really, really hard. That was like you guys learning occlusion the first (laughs) year. 
yeah. <laughs> having to learn all the accounting terms was really yeah. traumatic. But um, no, but just having a basic, like you know, learning about economics and understanding demand and supply, and now being able to listen to the business report on the news and actually yeah. understand about. <laughs> and you know uh, interest rates and all the rest of it um, we also did some other really cool things so um, you know one of my lecturers was a business ethics uh, teacher and his course was really amazing and really got you to sort of think about where you know where is your point of reference in terms of your you, you know your ethics um, we also did a great course in negotiation, so actually nice. learning how to um, actually understanding the theory of negotiation and learning that negotiation, you should be thinking about what is the shared value. So not just thinking about what you get out of something, but understanding how by working together you can actually improve what everybody gets out of a negotiation. That's great. Uh, we did supply chain and I decided that if I hadn't have become dentist, I would have done, I, I could have been <laughs> awesome at supply chain management. Yeah. <laughs> <Sounds> <laughs> looking at processes and identifying how you can improve processes and ensure that everything sort of moves as efficiently as possible. Um, so that was really interesting. And then, of course, um, the advantage of the MBA that I did at Lausanne was that they also had a healthcare focus. So nice. the, we had a, a special interest group at the end where we focused on, um, you know, subjects specific to healthcare. So that included uh, therapeutic innovation. So understanding um, understanding the challenges that big pharmaceutical companies face in terms of remaining innovative and yet having to meet the challenges of, you know, meeting um, share market expectations. Um, we did another subject looking at um, health technology assessment. So actually understanding, you know, what is the cost of healthcare to society and when we implement a new um, screening test or a new medication or a new technology, how much does that actually cost and how do we measure the benefits? Um, and then we also did healthcare strategy and marketing. So actually trying to understand, you know, how do you create value for your customer, identify your customer, what is yeah. their willingness to pay and all the rest of it. So the point, though, is that I think by doing a comp, well, because I'm a detailed person, <laughs> but by doing something really comprehensive and being forced into actually committing to that study. Yeah. A very very hard 15 to 18 months particularly if you're working yeah. but um, at the end of it you come out an extremely informed position and um, I think you are in a really great position to um, be able to make informed decisions that enable you to be successful that's awesome that's just pretty cool there's a lot of uh, good information in there and I think it opens up a lot of options for you, right? So have you thought about what you want to do with, you know, the combination of uh, qualifications that you have now once you get over to the UK? Yes. So um, I'm actually, I have a position lined up, which I'm very excited about. Nice. So that's working for a dental supply company. So that'll be looking at uh, procurement of new products, identifying, you know, what products may not be selling so well and how do we sort of either invigorate or get rid of them, um, looking at supply chain. So, um, you know, how do we improve services to customers? What are the customers' 
concerns about, you know, what we're, or how do we improve um, our service to our customers? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I want to get back into prosthodontics as well, because yeah. as, as I said before, pros is cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. And um, so I've uh, talked to a few dentists actually from the UK on this podcast, and um, a lot of them are not too happy about the public sector, the NHS system and, and the fees yeah. and everything associated with that. So going over there now, do you think you can have any role to play um, with, obviously, once you've been there for a while, um, in terms of like policy? Because I feel like um, even within Melbourne Dental School, we had a few of the, uh, a few of the dentists and the, uh, the demos and all that. They were from the UK that they come over. Uh, so it might be a bit of a ba uh, brain drain from like dentists leaving because of the NHS fees. Have you thought, like, is there anything that you can potentially do with that or? Uh, potentially. It's really interesting actually, because um, I did go to what was called a five day return to work course, uh, which was run by the NHS. And that was fanta fantastic because it gave me an opportunity to sort of understand how the um, NHS manages their, their their dental program yeah. and what's really interesting is um, they changed the rules a number of years ago and the purpose of that was to try and um, change the the philosophy of how um, treatment was being provided so beforehand it was sort of the more you did the more you got paid and then they changed the solution to try and make it that um that there was more of a preventative focus and, and people weren't over-servicing. But unfortunately, we now have, um, you know, we now sort of have this situation of not so much, I don't want to say supervised neglect, but in some ways, you know, you get paid the same amount regardless of how many restorations you do. And so yeah. if you're treating some patients who are poor dental attenders, well, then we have this situation where they might be coming in and you have to then provide you know 10 or 15 restorations and you're getting paid the same amount as if you only do one restoration wow. okay. and the reality is that you know if you want to be able to focus on good quality treatment how how do you do that so mm -hmm. I think the bigger challenge is how do we actually make patients more responsible for their mouths because the issue is that dental disease is preventable yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, let's change it up a little bit. I'm hoping to uh, maybe pick your brain a little bit and uh, talk some pros. So I've been, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of crowns this year. Uh, you know, over the past few months, I've slowly been doing a little bit more. But I'm finding a lot of times when I get these cases back uh, from the lab, um, you know, I cement in the crown, especially, you know, with like upper sevens or lower sevens, um, I'm having a lot of issue with the occlusion of it uh, a lot of time spending polishing afterwards uh, especially like on excursive movements the patient's always like oh no it's not quite right just yet um, so I'm hoping uh, maybe I can pick your brain a little bit and we can talk about maybe how you approach a case you know for example you're preparing an upper seven uh, what are you looking for before you prep what are you assessing in the occlusion and um, after your prep you know uh, after you temporize the tooth and get the crown back from the lab what sort of things we should be uh, watching out for um, just to try and uh, make things a bit more efficient and and better workflow so we're not spending a whole lot of time polishing and, and scratching up our, our beautiful little crowns that we're getting back from the lab. Okay, so the first thing that I would be uh, making point is that before you place any crown, you should be assessing the the what the um, occluding contacts are on that teeth, not only in maximum intercuspation but also in excessive movement. So trying to understand, you know, 
on that tooth before you actually prepare the tooth, do you have um, contact in excursive movements as well as maximum intercuspation? Because the reality is, depending on, say, the amount of canine guidance that a tooth has, yeah. oh, sorry, depending on the amount of canine guidance that exists in the person's, um, you know, mouth, um, what are the contacts going to be in the more posterior region? So if you do actually have wear on the canine, then you may have more of a group function. Yeah. Um, so it's always good to sort of analyse and understand your situation before you get started. Um, the second thing is that's why it's always good to have a set of diagnostic models as well because when you're working on, say, a, po a very posterior tooth, it can be quite challenging to actually see what is going on and yeah. uh, by virtue of your articulating paper being, you know, several microns thick or whatever, um, you can actually record more than what does actually exist. So a set of models is always, or if you have like an intraoral scanner, looking at it, you know, on the, the three-dimensional model is actually quite good because, mm -hmm. you know, then you can actually see if there's any wear faceting and seeing if you've got contact in those excursive movements. So then the next thing would actually be um, preparing your tooth. And then, of course, um, I always try to check the inter-arch space in functional movements after I've prepped the tooth as well. So it can be really challenging holding a mirror in there and, and seeing. But if you've prepped two millimetres off, you know, off a seven, then you should be able to see space between the tooth that's prepared and the opposing arch, you know, during the, the functional movements. Yeah. Um, another good way to check your inter-arch distance is actually when you um, prepare your provisional or your interim restoration as well. So um, what is a good technique to get into is actually making sure that after you've prepared your interim restoration is to use a set of calipers and just make sure that you've got appropriate thickness. Okay, nice. Very thorough. <laughs> That's why some clinicians will actually prepare their provisional restoration before they take their impression because it gives you a means of actually assessing that you have adequate um, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah. yeah. Then after you do that, um, then you take your impression. Now, the thing that's really important is depending on your type of impression can actually influence the inter-arch relationship as well. So when your patient opens up wide, the mandible, particularly in the posterior region, can pull inward slightly. So when your models are poured up and articulated, you can end up with a slight difference in, you know, occlusal relationship on the models relative to what you have um, in the, the patient's mouth. Yeah. The last thing that's really important is when you get your crown back from your um, your technician, if you have it on a set of models, you should be actually checking the fun trying to hand articulate and move the models around to see okay, whether nice. or not yeah. your technician has actually been respectful of the inter-arch relationship as well. Because mm -hmm. it's not I, I, like I've had situations where the technician has on, say, a person who has something which is like a 60-year-old dentition, so, you know, pretty flat cuspal inclines, yeah. provided me with a lower seven or an upper seven, which has the same cuspal formation as, a tw uh, you know, like as, a, as an 18-year-old. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's obvious <laughs> then that in excursive movements there's going to be, you know, some discrepancies there and then you're yeah. going to spend a lot of time actually adjusting in the, mm -hmm. the patient's mouth as well. Tip. Yeah. 
But what's also important is that when you uh, prepare your provisional restoration, you need to make sure that you actually maintain the um, same occlusal contacts as you had before you prepared the tooth. So if you actually think, oh, to make it easier for myself, I'm going to reduce the the occlusal table of the provisional restoration, leaving sort of a space between your tooth and the opposing tooth, well, then there is a potential risk that because you don't have that stable contact, there could be movement of those teeth. Okay, that's interesting. And in terms of taking impressions, um, obviously in school, and maybe one part of the reason I didn't like pros so much was you had to like take impressions, go make a special tray, come back. Like there's a lot of work involved. Um, yeah, sure. So I have been a bit lazy perhaps and I, we use like a triple tray. Um, yeah. And I've had some labs because uh, I try and talk to the labs a fair bit to try and get like feedback on my preps and all that, try and like uh, improve it a little bit. Um, and a few of them have told me uh, the triple tray usually works pretty well, but sometimes it, the bite can be a little bit off. So it's always mm-hmm. better to take a separate upper and lower, even if you're just doing not a full arch, but just a quadrant, just do separate. Sure. So what's your like uh, opinion on triple trays and is it okay to use them for like routine single unit cases or? I mean, you know, some prosthodontists will say you should never use a triple tray and then there's other prosthodontists who for a single unit would always use a triple tray. So um, I think that they can be used quite effectively. Um, Some people would say you should never, like you could use them when you have contacts on either side of the two, use them for all situations. Um, probably the most important thing when you're using a triple tray though is making sure that your triple tray is rigid because if it's not rigid, you can end up with some discrepancies. Yeah. And the second thing is actually making sure that um, when you seat the triple tray, there's no interference and it's seated correctly and that the patient actually occludes together correctly because if all of those things aren't correct, then what you, the the information that you're actually sending to the technician is incorrect and then you are going to end up with, you know, an incorrect replication. And I guess that's why the technicians are sort of saying to you, maybe you should be providing an upper and lower impression because what it does is it gives them an opportunity to actually analyse the patient's occlusion and ensure that what, they're rece- what they've received in the triple tray impression is, is correct relative okay. to when the patient has the full arch. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the challenge, the, the challenge that you have, though, is that really um, if you are using a, a triple tray, it's important that the patient has canine guidance and no contacts in excursive movements because if, for example, the patient uh, doesn't have, if they don't have canine guidance and they have contact in an excursive movement, well, then yeah. you're not going to capture that in your triple tray. Okay. Um, so another another case that, you know, uh, comes through the doors pretty often and so far I haven't been too sure, you know, how to treat it um, or how to manage it is um, the older patients that come in, they haven't been to a dentist in a long time. And uh, the posteriors seem okay. There's a bit of like wear facets on the posterior region, but their anterior region, they sort of have like that edge to edge, like classic bite and it was like a massive like semicircle wear like on all the front uh, teeth. Um, and there's not much restorative space because you can't like build the teeth up really because then the posterior teeth will be like discluded. So um, in terms of a new dentist coming in and, and, and seeing a big case like that uh, come through the door, um, how would you sort of um, recommend they sort of 
manage it. Obviously, if, even if it entails like uh, requires like referring it out to a pros, but um, in the initial sort of assessment, what should we, what things should we be looking for? Um, what um, things should we, we be checking? What records should we be taking so we can make that you know educated treatment plan for the patient? I guess the first question would be: Is it of concern to the patient? Yeah. And, and how much wear actually exists because the reality is over a lifetime we are going to have wear on our teeth. Um, and so is the wear that we're seeing, you know, abnormal wear or is it really just wear associated with the, the patient's age? Normal function, yeah. Um, is the patient concerned about the wear? Because obviously as clinicians we're sometimes more concerned about things than what the patients are. So, you know, does the patient have any sensitivity? Um, do they have any increased mobility? Do they have any, you know, any other concerns related to their teeth? Um, I guess the other question would be how long have they actually had that wear for because we don't know if we're seeing a patient for the first time we don't actually know how long their teeth have been like that for and this yeah. may have been something which happened a long time ago or it might be something that they're only just you know noticing at this point um and then once i've sort of elucidated answers to those questions then it would be well does the patient actually want to do something you know yeah. do we need to try and prevent further wear from happening or does the patient then want to actually have some sort of treatment to manage the the wear for either functional or aesthetic reasons or whatever but yeah. really it's that you know you need to sort of understand where the patient's mind is at because um you know unless they actually want to seek treatment or they want to prevent treatment then really there's not much more that you can do except for acknowledging that there is something there and uh, you've tried to understand and, and gain a diagnosis to the issue and then um, provide the patient with the option of sort of management or treatment either through referring or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah. that's pretty cool. So that's a lot to uh, consider there. So in terms of, uh, for example, like a patient, uh, just like a bit more of cosmetic sort of side of things, um, they've come in and they're not happy with like their wear and their like, uh, interior incisors, the uppers. Yeah. Um, a lot of time I feel like I've, and I've just like from experience, like I've built them up like with just composite and, you know, like yeah. a month later they're like chipped the back off or it's, it's broken back off. What things am I missing? Is it, am I not like making sure like in excursive movements, there's not interferences is the, do I have to like maybe build up the canines a bit to like restore like a different sort of canine guidance? Um, just for something simple like that, that most people would maybe face in their first, you know, uh, year of working. Um, what would be a good way of making sure like your anterior buildups don't fail? Well, this is the challenge, isn't it? Because why has the, why is there that missing tooth structure in the first instance? Yeah. So, yeah, so the missing tooth structure is there because the patient probably bruxes their teeth. And what we know about bruxing is that, you know, the number of episodes, the frequency of episodes, and also the, uh, you know, the force or the load on the teeth during an episode can can vary dramatically as well so if you're just putting on these small little um you know repairs with in composite resin and you're bonding them using our special you know glue called dentine <laughs> bonding agents yeah. <laughs> then you know what what are the chances that they are actually going to survive excessive load and in particular the load is not necessarily along the long axis of the tooth it's you know it's that sliding load as well yeah. So 
this is where sometimes you think that you're doing the right thing and what actually ends up happening is um, it becomes a very expensive exercise for you because the patient has paid the money and then you're having to see the patient and repair the issue and all the rest of it. So... The first issue is under, you know, acknowledging that the reason why the patient's tooth has worn is because of some sort of parafunction. Now, um, we spoke about bruxism, but you know, what else do people do with their teeth? They do really ridiculous things, like they chew their fingernails. Yeah. Uh, they pull off uh, lids from stubbies. Yeah. They, uh, you know, like they do, they, they eat ice, like they do a lot of things which puts a lot of load on those restorations that you've spent so much time sort of getting to look really, really nice. Yeah. So the question is, is your little restoration really going to be able to last the, the test of time? And um, that's when then sometimes in order to have you know, sufficient bonding and structural uh, integrity within the material itself, Um, you may need to consider veneers. But then, of course, veneers are more expensive. Um, The patient's investing a lot more money, a lot more time, and they're still under those same stresses as well. So there is a risk that they might fail. And then when they fail, they're a much bigger problem for you as well. So this is where sometimes we sort of do things because we think that it's a good idea or we think that it will look better. And, uh, you know, then we run into this predicament where treatment doesn't actually, you know, play out as we were hoping. And then we're left sort of, you know, responding to a quite an angry patient. Yeah, for sure. You said this would work. (laughs) <laughs> so I think you have to, uh, setting expectations is something that I'm learning a lot this year. It's really important to do. You gotta really Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, if a patient's coming in and they have this wear on their front teeth, then, you know, the thing that you need to make them aware of is that enamel is one of the, you know, the hardest materials in our body. And mm-hmm. somehow you yourself have actually damaged it. Yeah. So I can put something there, but the risk is, the forces which have caused the wear of your teeth are actually going to cause this material to fail as well. If you really want to give it a go, we can, but I can't actually provide you with any guarantee that this is going to last unless we do something like provide you with a night guard that you wear every single night mm-hmm. and then that's going to reduce the load on those restorations. And it puts that, See what but, I mean? It's yeah. horrible, horrible cycle. <laughs> But you put the onus on them to make sure they wear their night guard. So it's their fault if it doesn't break. That's pretty cool. And um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. But, but you have to because how can you control what they do? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something that you learn in your first year because you take everything so personally. Like if something fails, you're like, what am I doing wrong? Like what's wrong with me? And then you kind of start to learn that obviously nothing is going to be permanent in the first place. And second of all, um, yeah, if the patient's doing something that they shouldn't be doing or that have parafunction basically like things will fail. So that's pretty cool. Um, so the sort of the last thing I wanted to get your opinion on before, uh, before we go here is, um, so for posterior, obviously like materials now, um, obviously, um, obviously like we had like the gold and then we had PFM and now, you know, we had uh, lithium desilicate like Emacs and zirconia is coming up now. Uh, what's your opinion on using something like an Emacs for like a posterior like a single unit, like on a upper six or a lower six, would you trust the strength of that or would you do like zirconia or PFM still over, over Emacs? Yeah, that's a really interesting question actually. Um, in in all instances, it's real, well, and I keep coming back to the, the same sort of um, 
the same question is, you know, what's important to the patient? So um, the first thing that I'm going to discuss with the, well, the first thing is that the patient needs some sort of restoration which provides cuspal coverage to protect the tooth longer term. So that's the first uh, diagnosis that we've come to. We're then going to look at what is the visibility of that tooth when the patient smiles and when the patient talks or when they're in function to get an idea of how much you can see the tooth. Once we have an understanding of the visibility of the tooth, then we're actually going to talk to the patient about what different materials exist. Now, one of the advantages of, say, um, gold and monolithic zirconia or um, non-precious metal is that the amount of occlusal thickness you require is substantially less than if you're doing a porcelain fusta metal or you're doing an Emacs. Yeah. um, another factor that's going to influence your decision making in terms of what you're going to recommend to the patient is what is the actual, um, you know, height of the actual tooth. Because if you're working on, say, um, a lower seven and you have, say, four millimetres of tooth structure, well, the last thing you want to do is actually reduce another two millimetres to yeah. ensure you've got adequate space for your lithium disilicate or, you know, 1.5, 1.2 millimetres for your PFM as well. So understanding the tooth is important and then understanding what the patient's um, aesthetic requirements are is important as well. So if my patient says to me, I don't care, I just want what lasts the longest, I'm going to say to them, awesome, we're going to do gold or we're going to do non-precious. Do you prefer gold? Do you prefer silver? What do you want? Okay, Mm -hmm. so we've established that they're going to go down that path. Yeah. If they say to me, I want white, I'm going to say, if the height of the tooth is quite short, then I'm going to say to them, look, the only option we really have is a monolithic zirconia. Um, And then I'm going to explain to them that the monolithic zirconias, although they're white, they can have actually a high value or they're quite bright. Mm -hmm. So if the tooth is visible, it may actually glow a little bit because that's what zirconia does. (laughs) Now, if somebody is driven by white teeth, they're usually not going to be concerned that the zirconia is too white for them, all right? Um, And then the consideration then is, is PFM or is a lithium disilicate going to be a more appropriate restoration? Now, Mm -hmm. I... For me personally, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, I was practising before I, I went away, I was probably more inclined on, say, sixes and sevens to do the monolithic zirconia. Um, Further forward in the arch, though, so generally on a four or a five, I was probably doing lithium lithium disilicate only because I think the colour of that material is much more natural than what you get with the zirconia. The other thing to consider as well, though, is historically um, they were using zirconia for anterior restorations and they were doing it as a layered restoration. So in essence, the core material was zirconia and then they were using layered porcelain over the top. Mm-hmm. And then they had problems with the layering porcelain actually fracturing away from the core. And in part that was due to not really understanding the relationship between layering porcelain and the zirconia and the heat transfer and the rest of it. So Another important thing to appreciate is that the use of monolithic zirconia is still somewhat in its experimental stage in the sense that we don't really have a lot of evidence that shows categorically that, you know, monolithic zirconia in thin cross-section in the posterior region of the mouth 
is actually going to be, you know, that it can actually withstand the, you know, the trauma that it experiences sort of being yeah. in the posterior region of the mouth. Mm-hmm. So the caveat that needs to come with your monolithic zirconia is that, well, I can offer you this white filling, but we don't have a lot of evidence at this point in time to uh, support it. That's pretty cool. And it was interesting with zirconia. I was listening to a podcast a while back. Unfortunately, I forget uh, who it was that said it. Um, they, their opinion was that they don't use zirconia for, for any restoration because it's so indestructible and they want things in the mouth to sort of, if they're going to fail to fail, cause it's better for it to fail than to just have this solid, like indestructible, like object in the mouth. That's not going to f- fail or wear at the same rate as like the other teeth. So I thought that was a pretty yeah. cool, uh, pretty cool sort of thing, way to think about it. Um, so I just wanted to see what your opinion was. And, and from my side of things, I think, um, maybe because we're not as confident with our uh, preps, <laughs> the Emacs, the bonding as a little bit of uh, added security maybe. So Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's an interesting comment about the uh, the, model, the use of zirconia. Um, look, the reality is a gold crown can last in the mouth for a very, very long period of time, but if you need to remove a gold crown, um, you're ability to remove the gold crown is a lot easier than what a monolithic zirconia is going to be by virtue of the material itself. And so, you know, if you use sort of a metal cutting burr, you can, you know, cut through the metal crown quite quickly and then flick it off. Whereas with zirconia, you're literally having to, you know, re-prepare the tooth, which is quite challenging. Um, The people who seriously hate zirconia are endodontists. So (laughs) you put a zirconia restoration on a tooth and then the tooth has pulpal issues and they see the endodontist and the endodontist is really cursing (laughs) the use of zirconia look you know who knows what's right or what's wrong i mean that's in some ways it's the unknown that in makes dentistry a little bit exciting isn't it because we only know what we know and we know what the limitations are um but you know if the patient is insistent on a white restoration and your options are and you're looking at a, a lower seven or an upper seven and your options are monolithic zirconia, PFM or Emacs, you know, it's going to be which is most conservative of the tooth structure. Yeah. Because, you know, I I am aware that things fail long term, but I'm not planning for failure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not thinking that at some point I want to cut this crown off. <laughs> That's a good way to approach it. <laughs> and it's funny because um, so I work in an emergency office um, like one day a week. And obviously like we see we, uh, work from a lot different dentists, like in the area, cause they come in as an emergency. Um, and I'm finding there's a lot of teeth that get crowned that there's pulpal issues after and they flare up a little bit. Um, like, I, and obviously with your experience, what do you think um, like some actionable tips that we can do while prepping a, a vital tooth uh, to try and minimize that risk? Um, obviously I've heard one is like a lot of people um, like over dry the tooth, like before taking an impression or something. And that causes yeah, sure. like, uh, irritation. So is there any other tips that you have, uh, that we can min- minimize the risk like, apart from being conservative to structure? Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. So I think in the first instance, um, any tooth that I'm going to prepare for a crown, I always replace the core. Well, it depends on what type of restoration you're doing, whether you're doing sort of an inlay overlay type restoration or whether you're going to replace the core and then place a, a crown. But the first thing you really need to do is pulp test the tooth and ascertain that it's responding in what is a normal manner for that tooth. 
The second thing is remove the existing restoration because that will give you a good indication of how close you are to the pulp of the tooth and uh, it also sort of, if the tooth is going to flare up straight away, then it may flare up sort of after that appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, your comment was exactly right. You need to be mindful of the preparation requirements for the material that you're going to use and try and be as conservative as possible while actually ensuring that you're providing the adequate um, restorative space that's necessary. And that's where, say, for example, coming back to the discussion of zirconia, um, zirconia is a far more conservative restoration than, say, what a porcelain fused to metal is. Actually, it's quite interesting because there are some studies looking at the differences between, um, you know, volume of two structure loss. I can't remember the names of the authors, but um, there's some really cool um, papers to read, actually appreciating um, actually appreciating how much tooth volume is lost when you're preparing a, a tooth. But what's also interesting when you're looking at those papers is just appreciating how um, even though the difference in volume loss may not be in total, may not be significantly different between a porcelain fused and metal compared to, say, a lithium disilicate, yeah. the issue, though, with the porcelain fused and metal is that by having a 1.5 or a 1.75 preparation depth on the buckle, you are getting a lot closer to the pulp than if you do, say, one millimetre circumferentially. Obviously, the faster you can do things and have less trauma to the tooth is, is, is good. But I think also another important consideration is just uh, ensuring that when you provide your interim restoration or your provisional restoration, you're ensuring that the tooth is well sealed. So you have, um, you know, good margins on your provisional crown relative to the, the preparation line. Mm-hmm. And then I think the tooth obviously suffers a little bit of trauma if you do a, a resin cement rather than something such as a GIC cement. Yeah. And then the reality is if a tooth has suffered that much trauma that they have needed a crown and then they've had a crown, the chances yeah. are that little pulp is going to shrivel up and die at some point. <laughs> That's a good way to approach it. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. There's a lot of uh, information in there. I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of good value in it and learn a lot. Um, so I'm definitely going to, I think I need to read up on it a bit more. And, and you've kind of motiv- motivated me because uh, not to say I'm going to go do a process residency now, but I think I want to spend a bit more time uh, to get to the, get a bit more detail and learn things a bit more in depth and occlusion and, and uh, indirect restorations. So thank you so much. Uh, I wish you all the best with your, uh, Uh, move back to the UK and everything. I'm sure you're going to do a lot of great things over there and uh, definitely stay in touch and uh, and we'll hopefully do another episode of these in the future. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. Take care.